Welcome back, everybody. It's been a little bit. Awesome to be back, everybody. Awesome. So I want to go on a particular direction here. I want to move in even more into Ingo Swan territory. And before we go into the specifics of the books that we're going to go through, I would love to just break down a who's who of who Ingo Swan is. For those of you that don't know, and this is all from his website, ingoswan.com. Highly recommend going there if you are interested in this dude. But among other things, he is the, basically the father of controlled remote viewing for, you know, the U.S. government and here in the West. But Ingo Swan, born September 14th, 1933, and uh, since moved on to the next level of the game, January 31st, 2013, was internationally known as an advocate and researcher of the exceptional powers of the human mind and as a leading figure in government and scientific projects to investigate and identify the scope of subtle human perceptions. So this guy's job was to delve deep into what all human beings are capable of. Since 1970, his name and work has been incorporated into most contemporary books about psi and the paranormal. He has featured in four volumes of Time Life's best-selling series entitled Mysteries of the Unknown. Ingo's early work in parapsychology, as noted and highly successful guinea pig, made him a psychic superstar in that field. His subsequent research on behalf of American intelligence interests, including that of the CIA, won him top psi-spy status. His involvement in government research projects required the discovery of innovative approaches toward the actual realizing of subtle human energies. Here we go. As a subset of this, in the 1970s and into the 1980s, Ingo worked to define a technique known as remote viewing, an action described by Ingo as acquiring impressions about a target that is shielded by both distance and time using our innate faculties. For this purpose, he developed a set of protocols, saying this was the 17-year period during which the elements of controlled remote viewing, CRV, were gradually separated out from a somewhat ambiguous morass of parapsychological phenomena then refined until it was an entity of and within itself, complete with a novel nomenclature appropriate to it, and when understood, even in its natural state in individuals, it was no longer ambiguous, but seen as a precise set of existing faculties against which the ambiguous term psychic was no longer useful. More on this can be found in the remote viewing section of this website. But yeah, okay, so the dude, his job was to not only flex his psychic powers which, you know, he was able to sharpen, refine, and understand to such a degree that he created a government program training people how to do it, calls it remote viewing. And I've done it a couple of times. It is fascinating and awesome. Uh, I have not tried it in a while. <laughs> but it's actually, you know, not that difficult. And I, I go into the rudimentary uh, how-tos in my uh, two- or three-part series where I go into his book, uh, Ingo Swan's Everybody's Guide to Natural ESP, talks about his whole experience and first exposure to the fact that he was like, oh man, I'm psychic, I just did that. And then how he basically begins to go into the process himself. But you put yourself in a relaxed state, 
and, and it, it, like a light trance state. Have a pencil and a piece of paper, and for a period of time, intently ask your whole system to pick up information on a set of coordinates, which you don't know what are. But somebody else does, because the coordinates are uh, correlated to a place on the map, basically. And so you draw what comes to you for a little while. Just don't, and don't stress. Just chill through the experience. The, the idea is to really keep yourself, uh, to relax yourself consistently into this slightly altered trance state so that the information can come to you because the information is there, because the implications of having this ability means that we're all connected. It's wild, and I've just veered off the path of describing who he is. But anyway, he sets all that up and has written about his findings uh, in many different books. They're great. I really enjoy them, and that's why I'm here today, because I'd like to discuss and go through uh, volumes one and two of Secrets of Power. Ingoswan.com, by the way. Thank you very much. I-N-G-O-S-W-A-N-N.com. Really great website, especially for mobile. Very easily accessible. Thank you. The reason we're going through this is because I think a lot of us have a limited spectrum of awareness of what it is that we actually have innate access to. And to that point, the subtitle of the first volume in Secrets of Power is Individual Empowerment versus the Societal Panorama of Power and Depowerment. It's a bunch of laying down of terms at first, but the discussion comes to individuals and the innate empowerment abilities and structures we have within ourselves that we don't have to go out and necessarily find in the external world. They are within us already. It's about accessing them. And he gets into that. Versus societal power structures, which are largely set up to self-perpetuate. And one of the major ways they do that is by suppressing or secretizing knowledge, access, and information to and about the innate individual powers within each and every one of us that are, in effect, a direct threat to the artificial power structure that is interested only in self-perpetuating the structure. You see what I'm saying? <sighs> Basically, more awareness to the undeniable fact that human beings are a power species, according to Ingo Swan, and that the more awareness we have of that, the less susceptible we as a species will be to artificial power structures that do not have our best interests, but the artificial power structures interests as primary. And also, and this is just me rolling down the hill with it, we can use our innate powers to help shape power structures that can aid in the cultivation of the powers innate within us all, rather than suppress a whole bunch of it. Because structure's not bad, structure's good. And we all need some structure. Okay, well there we go. Hang with me. Ingo's a cool dude. And he's got some really cool things to say. So here we go. Secrets of Power. The Beginnings. I do just want to read the author's note here. Ingo Swan says, The more things change, the more they remain the same. 
It's an old adage that applies to many human activities, but it certainly applies to the activities of human societal power. Its outer circumstances and formats change over time, but its inner workings remain remarkably the same. One of the inner factors that remain the same consists of the ever-ongoing distinctions between the powerful and the powerless that prevail through time and circumstances. Thus, one may talk of ancient or modern civilizations and empires, and even of the forthcoming globalization process, and still be talking of the powerful versus the powerless. Two other factors also remain the same. One, the general lack of interest in the nature of the powerless, i.e. why the powerless are powerless, and two, the enormous fascination with the powerful and with possibilities of becoming powerful. I mean, that's what got me to buy the book. This fascination is extremely prevalent and is shared by the powerless and the powerful, the latter of which are fascinated with themselves and have little interest in the powerless. Indeed, there is more fascination with the dramatics of power and achieving powerfulness than with the principal mandate of our species, survival into the future, the prospect of which by now has become something of an unpredictable gamble. There is another significant factor that needs to be taken into account, although it might at first seem quite distant from the problems of power. This has to do with the enormous amount of discovered data, information, and knowledge that is avoided, forbidden, made taboo, swept under carpets, or simply trashed. A whole bunch of Wilhelm Reich's work. Thanks, feds. Brain researchers often say that we use only 10 to 15% of our brains. It's also quite possible to think that we use only 10 to 15% of discovered knowledge. One may ask what these two somewhat unexplainable discrepancies have to do with power. Well, it's entirely possible that we know only 10 to 15% about the nature of power and that we utilize only 10 to 15% of our innate powers. Why a species equipped to function at higher percentages of everything should remain confined to 10% performance is an awesome situation to meditate on. Most information sources regarding power seem to end up giving two basic impressions about it. One, that it is more or less straightforward and easy to understand if one has the intelligent wherewithal to do so, and two, that what is seen as power in both the individual and societal realms reflects some kind of natural order, and which automatically establishes the legitimacy of the differences between the powerless, the relatively powerful, and the powerful. He goes on to say, Societal power is considered a very precious commodity, perhaps the most precious. Access to it is therefore a matter of ultra-intense competition. In turn, easy access to the competition itself must be guarded in order to limit the number of possible competitors. There is only one really efficient way to guard against access to power, and that is to conceal, prohibit, and secretize all real knowledge about it. The long-term result is that most do not comprehend very much about power at all. But most do appreciate two well-known facts about it. One, that power is what individuals can bump up against as they proceed through their lives. And two, that power is also what, literally speaking, can thump across individuals attempting to proceed through their lives. There's a basic fact that those aspiring to empowerment must face sooner or later. Societal power is almost always more powerful than the individual, even more powerful than groups of them. Thus, in seeking empowerment, individuals will bump up against a variety of real-life societal situations already structured to control and delimit too much empowerment by too many. 
Unless the aspirant understands something of what will be bumped up against along these societal lines, it is probable that not much will happen except a grinding of the gears. Therefore, the first mandate for achieving empowerment is to become cognizant of those societal factors and forces already geared to preventing it on a very large scale. In view of this unavoidable mandate, the first volume of Secrets of Power is confined to 28 chapters, and we'll be going through most of them. Each discusses some societal aspect of power and depowerment, and all of which, in real life, feedback can defeat and even trash individual attempts at empowerment. At the end of each chapter are some suggested items to observe in real life out there, or some suggested exercises that might help increase awareness along those lines. One seldom gets anywhere unless there is some kind of map to follow. And that's basically the idea here. It's the beginning of a laying out of a map, of marking the territory of power, societal, individual, everything in between. The more we can expose and discuss these terms, I think the more individually empowered we have the opportunity to become, more knowledge, more options, more chances to live our lives, actualizing our real potential. Well, let's kick it into part one, strategic background vistas regarding empowerment. So chapter one, the complex labyrinth of powerdom. One of the first things that can be observed about power is that its workings are vast and enormously complex. You can compare it to a labyrinth. In that labyrinth, one can expect to find accuracy and inaccuracies, inadvertent and deliberate misinformation, false turns, double backs, crazy loops. I love labyrinths. I had a massive maze book when I was a little kid. Oh, just going through it. Just the experience of figuring out how to get out of there is fun. He goes on, most people think about power from within these contexts of their personal realities, which may be governed not only by social conditioning, but by the limits of their experience and by flaws of knowledge. So the only way we're able to think about power is by the paradigms that we have used as frames of reference for ourselves and living in the world. And if those frames are incorrect or not filled in or, you know, pretty simple in structure, we're not going to have the kind of access to understanding the power that is both within us and around us, for us and against us. Subdividing the Panorama of Power Power can be divided into three general categories. Power at the societal levels, power at the individual level, and power in relationship to intangible energetic phenomena that transcend the societal and individual contexts. You know, I magnetism. No amount of society is going to be like, magnetism, you will now go this way. I mean, actually, I guess when science gets in, you could, kind of, you could, but it's going to be around, you know. I guess you can influence it, but it's not going to go away. You can't be like, no more magnetism. You can't do that. The overriding importance of societal power. Ingo first states, I fully realize that many readers will principally be interested in self-empowerment at the individual level. However, as it is broadly understood, societal and individual power are frequently in conflict, largely because power at the individual level is conditioned and harnessed so as to serve not only societal power, but the power elites who govern them. As far as I've been able to determine, Ingo says, no book on self-empowerment comes anywhere near identifying and addressing the awesome societal elements involved, many of which are designed to suppress, thwart, or prevent individual self-empowerment. 
It's one thing to wish for more self-empowerment, but such wishing can be thwarted if the individual is uninformed about the societal mechanisms designed to make widespread individual empowerment as complicated and as fruitless as possible. At the societal level, those ways and means have a long but quite hidden history and many of those methods involved have become not only institutionalized, but secreted, baked into the system. And it's interesting, me just bringing this up with my folks, uh, I got a lot of pushback immediately, just uh, from how, how, how is society set up against you? And it's set up against us in a way that will limit ways in which you can successfully express yourself. And, uh, you know, we have to get a job. Well, yes, you have to get a job. You have to be a functioning portion of society. Okay. Take a step back and consider no other being on this planet pays for its life. Pays to be here. That's the setup system that we set up. Right? Now, the idea that that system itself has inherent good in it, like a free market system where somebody pursues their goals or they are looking to produce a product a service that others will find valuable, and so they are going to charge for that service or product that others find valuable. That's fine. That's an even exchange. I think you can make a pretty solid argument that when a government injects funds into a system at unprecedented rates, no matter what period of time we're talking about, Weimar Republic or 2022 USA, it'll cause problems because that's an artificial manipulation. So yeah, there are systems set up in place that will limit the ability to express the innate power within each and every one of us. Listening to a Tim Pool uh, episode the other evening with Dr. Drew, Dr. Drew was saying there seems to be so much wasted potential out there. And I think that has a lot to do with what we're talking about here. The system that we are existing in seems to not assist the majority in pursuing actualization of the potential within us all. It seems to want to have you fit into a certain position that will continue to allow this system to persist. And of course, a system is going to want to persist, just like any system. Survival is a powerful mechanism. Survive. But the idea of a, of a, of a system that is set up in a way that seems to waste more potential or not support the pursuit of actualization of the potential, but again, push for you to fit in the system, regardless of what it is that you might feel is your potential, in order to be in this system. Heady, frustrating, I understand. Moving on. Hidden and secret aspects of power. Whatever is deliberately hidden regarding power equates to some kind of secrecy. And as most realize, the wheels of power turn not only the clever and covert manipulation of information and influences, but on a wide variety of secrets that are negotiated behind the scenes of public awareness. It's more important to bring the generic hidden aspects of power into visibility, so that those who have empowering interests might gain whatever they can, either in theory or by identifying or observing each aspect discussed. There is too much powerlessness. This is exceedingly strange for a species exceedingly rich in powers of all kinds. Volume 2 is sweet in that he goes into specifics. Too much powerlessness, especially if artificially engineered by societal measures, really does equate to a profound waste of human potentials, and even of human life itself. What Dr. Drew was talking about on Temple. Two necessary terms. Moving forward, he 
we, we get the breakdowns for lots of terms, but here are two necessary ones. The first of these is depowerment, which is not found in dictionaries, which I find very interesting. Depower can be understood as the direct opposite of empower, a term that is found in dictionaries and which basically means to enable, to increase in power. Depower thus means to disable or to reduce from power, to deprive it of capacity or strength, to make incapable or ineffective, or to cut back or down to negligible importance. Empowerment and depowerment are terms indicating active change of state processes of some kind, and so they should not be confused with powerful and powerless, which refer to states or static conditions. The second term is grok, which was coined by Robert A. Heinlein in his famous science fiction novel Stranger in a Strange Land, first published in 1969. The term refers to grasping or synthesizing the larger or overall meaning, nature, or essence of something via an apparent mixture of empathy, intuition, and sometimes telepathy. This activity does not necessarily imply a kind of extrasensory perception, but more refers to those cognizing abilities associated with the holistic and more speedy functions of the right hemisphere of the brain. Grokking is in contrast to understanding, the latter of which is usually achieved via the slower and more laborious linear functions of the left hemisphere. Grokking reveals the sum of the lined-up parts, which is not revealed by the parts themselves. As a familiar example of this, one can prepare food by following how-to recipes laid out in sequence, and this of course is a linear left hemisphere process. Without the recipe, however, foodstuffs may remain a mystery. Those who grok foodstuffs can produce delectable delights without reading how-to recipes. Power, of course, includes both understanding and grokking. But as with cooks, one probably should put one's money on the grokkers. Take scrambled eggs. You can read a recipe, and it can tell you to put in salt, pepper, bacon bits, ham, spinach. I mean, go, go nuts. Peppers, right? It's becoming uh, one heck of a dish. Or you can think to yourself, this needs salt. And how about some tomatoes? And you know what? Let's make it spicy and cheesy. A little jalapeno, a little cheddar. All of a sudden, you're grokking your meal rather than following a step-by-step -step recipe. I get it. Scrambled eggs. Items to consider. Enlarging one's powers of observing might actually constitute the basis of empowerment. All right, so chapter one. There we go. And just for my own two cents here. Attention. 101 seems to be the foundation of everything else. Enlarging one's powers of observing or attending to something, giving attention to, might actually constitute the basis of empowerment. Better observing, deeper observing, deeper attending, stronger, more consistent attention spans mean the basis of empowerment. And I must say today, it seems like attention spans and the ability to willfully hold attention to something is rapidly leaving modern human society. I wonder if that's by design. Mm. But hey, yeah, cool, fun to think about. That was chapter one, and we'll be moving on to chapter two next. And thanks for hanging. <laughs>